Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Looking for a way to build daily prayer discipline? Seen the rise in mindfulness meditation? But not sure if it is possible to meditate in a way that's consistent with your Catholic faith? Just looking for a way to breathe new life into your existing prayer routine? No matter what you're looking for, Hollow is here to help. Hollow is a Catholic prayer and meditation app that helps users deepen their relationship with God through audio-guided contemplative prayer sessions. From meditations on the daily gospel to the rosary to daily examines, Hollow has something for everyone. Hollow is the number one Catholic app in the U.S. It is free to download and has permanently free content, but you can also check out all of the premium sessions for 30 days, risk-free, by signing up at www.hollow.app slash breadbox. Welcome to the Champions Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rubin and Coach Phil. The podcast where we share stories of faith being activated through sports. Welcome to the Champions Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rubin. I will be joined by Coach Phil later in the episode, but we are so excited to have you joining us today. This is our first podcast in 2020, and full disclosure, this interview today was conducted in the end of September, uh, but just with certain things that were going on, the holidays and everything, it's been a while since we've launched a podcast, and so we are so excited to kind of relaunch the Champions Podcast this year with the hope of launching an episode every single week. And so uh, we're excited for the testimonies that God's going to share using the Champions Podcast. And we're excited to get the first one of 2020 out there so you guys can hear. And today we have the pleasure of being joined by PGA Tour caddy Paul Tesori. Paul is the caddy currently for Webb Simpson, uh, PGA Tour golfer, and Paul's testimony is phenomenal. If this is the first time that you've listened to the Champions Podcast, we exist to share the testimonies of college and professional, current and former athletes and coaches. We just believe that there is incredible power in testimony, incredible power in our stories, and that God uses our stories to impact the lives of other people. That our stories and the obstacles and the trials that we go through, that God brings us through, often provide hope for other people. And so, guys, if you're joining us today and you like what you hear on the podcast, please share it. This isn't about the Champions Podcast. This is more about what God has done in and through the lives of people. And so the more you like the podcast, the more you rate it, the more you review it, allows more people to be exposed to it. 
to hear these incredible Only God stories. So if the platform you listen to this is Apple Podcasts, if the platform you listen to it is through Android, whatever Stitcher, whatever you listen to, Podbean, please like, rate, and review it so that we can get in front of more people, so that more people can hear about the glory of God, more people can hear about what God has done in, in, in people's lives. And so without further ado, here is our interview with Paul Tesori. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Tesori. We are so excited to have you, sir. How are you doing today? Mike, thanks for having me on. Uh, today is a good day. Just here in Ponte Vedra, Florida, just dropped uh, the kids off at school. Um, I've got to go do a couple of honeydews and play some golf this afternoon. <laughs> so uh, what a great time to, to talk to you and to catch up and, and enjoy some of the sweltering heat. 96 in the middle of September is uh, not what I expected. Oh, my word. 96. Yeah, we're, I, I'm up here in Pennsylvania, and we're hitting the 90s the past two weekends. And so that is Crazy. not typical – mid to end of September weather, but it's a lot better than rain and snow. Amen. I agree. Well, we are super excited to have you on. We truly believe that God is going to do an amazing thing uh, in the hearts of those who hear your testimony and you're sharing what he has done. And so if it's okay with you, I'd love to open the podcast in prayer. I would love that. Absolutely. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord God, and Lord, your word, Matthew 18, 20 says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so, God, we are just trusting, Lord God, that you are here, that you are going to work in the hearts of those who are listening, Lord God, open their hearts to the work that you have done in Paul's life and in his family's life. Lord God, I pray and I trust that the journey that Paul has been on and the transformation that you have done in his heart, Lord God. We pray that that will happen in the hearts of our listeners, Lord God. And we pray that this podcast will be a celebration of what you've done and also an expectation of what's to come, Lord God, because we truly believe that our best days are before us, Lord. And um, God, we, we so thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity. And God, I just, I, I pray that um, above the Champions Podcast name being known, above Paul's name being known, by the end of this podcast, Lord God, it will be your name that is known. In your great and mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Love it. Absolutely. So, Paul, let's just kind of start at the beginning. So, did you grow up in a family where faith was at the forefront? Um, I did. Um, I grew up in a family where we went to church every week. Uh, we grew up going to a little, very small First United Methodist Church in St. Augustine, Florida, um, where my mom and dad were married, um, where one of my grand sets of grandparents were married. And, um, you know, that was just, a, that's what we did on Sundays. And I grew up, uh, you know, professing Jesus as my Savior, professing that uh, um, God was uh, all important in my life. And as I got older and, you know, when I left to, uh, to go to college, things started looking differently for me. I, I think girls became a little too important. I don't think it. I know it. Um, uh, I kind of call it the, the three G's came in and replaced God, which is uh, golf kind of overtook uh, my life for me. And that was when I was at University of Florida playing golf there. And uh, golf, girls, and good times. Those were the three that were kind of, <laughs> they ended up replacing God in my life. And um before I knew it, you know, I was out of college and golf had, had failed me for the first time and, and I was lost. And 
I mean, it took me a long, long time. I, I've tried to, you know, I know good friends who have come to faith that did not grow up in a Christian household. And I knew, I know friends that, you know, had faith very early on. And you know, I look back now and it's a scary time for me because I actually don't think I was saved. Uh, I look back at my upbringing and I, I told people about Jesus. Um, I talked uh, Christianese, so to say, uh, about uh, the things you're supposed to say and do. And I prayed and I did these things, but I think I had a lot of head knowledge of who uh, Jesus Christ was. Um, I think I had a lot of head knowledge of the things to do and to say, and I don't think I had any heart transformation. And it wasn't until much later in life um, that I uh, I decided to get baptized and turn my life over to God and um, just really start a relationship with Jesus. And, and that was just something growing up we didn't talk about. And you know, the Bible's very, very clear. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with the Lord. And um, I didn't grow up learning that. I grew up learning a little bit more about rules and regulations and how to work my way to heaven. And um, it took a long, long time, many, many years, probably two decades to learn that you can't earn your way to heaven. It's a free gift of grace. Amen. And the more I tried to earn my way there, um, the further away from God I got, which doesn't make sense in a lot of people's eyes. But once you go for it, or go through it and experience that transformation, it makes more sense. So can you kind of talk us through that moment where your faith did become real? Was it like a, a bam, all of a sudden, here it is, this transformational moment, or was it yeah. a gradual process that God began to captivate your heart? Well, it was definitely uh, um, uh, over a time period. I would say it happened in about a decade. I'm a little slow. I make fun, you know, I'm a huge Florida Gator fan. Uh, I love the University of Florida, but so maybe we're a little slow because uh, the Lord always kind of, you know, tries to be patient with me and kind of pat me along to keep me going. But for me, it was, um, I'd been through a divorce in 2005 and um, unbeknownst to us, we had a little one that was on the way. And, and so she comes out and I go through this period, these next five years, just trying to you know, trying to be the best dad I could, the best ex-husband I could, the best friend I could. I was working for BJ, who was number one in the world at the time. Um, and I'm going through all these things. And I remember it was 2010, and um, another broken relationship was uh, was about to happen um, with a girl that I was just desperately in love with. And another relationship was about to end. Um, I was working for Sean O'Hare, a little Pennsylvanian uh, for you guys up there in the Philly area. And uh, me and Sean were doing really, really well. But again, just there was not much there that was giving me joy and satisfaction. I moved up to a, an area that I was very widely considered one of the caddies in the world. And all of this was there yet. I felt completely empty inside. Uh, I had money. I had homes. I had a great job. I had a relationship with a girl I wanted to be with, but nothing was fulfilling. Whatever that hole was inside, I would wake up every day just feeling empty and um, the summer of 2010, I decided there was something to do about it, that all my broken relationships, there was only one thing in common and that was me. Um, all my broken promises to myself or to others, they were all me. And I just got to a place that I really wanted to follow the word, um, in the Bible, which was give yourself to the Lord and just see what he'll do for you, invite him in your heart. And so for me, I was baptized. And now again, we know you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but for me, that was kind of my transformation moment is. When I walked out of church that day, um, I was a different man. Um, I walked out of that church with a passion to learn the Word of God. And so that was the summer of 2010. And this is the part for me that people don't understand at first. So let's fast forward to the winter of 2010. So about five months after I was saved. Now, 
I had a little misconception of what was going to happen once I was saved. I thought that the job was going to get even better. I thought the homes were going to get even nicer. I thought the bank account was going to grow. I thought the relationship with my wife was going to get better. or My now wife, then girlfriend, was going to get better. I thought all these things were going to happen. And in the next five months, the real estate market crash had happened, and I lost. I was underwater on all three pieces of property. Um, I had to let those go into foreclosure, so I lost all of my credit. I lost every dime I'd made working for the best player in the world and two other great players at the same time. Sean O'Hare had uh, had fired me in October of that year, so I had no job, and my relationship with my wife was broken. So in December of 2010, worldly, God had stripped me of everything. I had lost everything that I'd worked so hard to get, yet it was the most at peace I had ever felt in my life. Wow. And the first time I shared my testimony was in church. It was in mid-December that year of 2010. And I didn't even realize, but as I was telling the story, I started to cry on stage telling my testimony. I just said, I guess I didn't realize it until right now, but this is the happiest and most joy-filled and peace-filled I have ever been right now in this moment. (sighs) And the only reason for that has to be God, because the world has stripped me of everything. So how can I be sitting here right now in a place of peace? And that's God. Um, and so that was my start. Uh, it would be the summer 2010 baptizing and the winter 2010 where I really, truly saw God's goodness that I'd been stripped of everything worldly, yet here I am uh, in a posture of peace and comfort, um, yet worldly, that shouldn't be the case. That, that <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it's, it's not awesome, Crazy. but yeah, it, it, it's awesome on this end of it. You know, I'm sure going through yeah, it, it was so sure difficult. You know, a lot of the people that listen to our podcast are student athletes and, you know, whether high school or college and, you know, in their eyes, their sport is their identity, you know, and so they look at someone like you or a professional, another professional athlete, and they say, man, that's what I want to attain. Like, I want to have those houses. I want to have those cars. I want, you know, and can you just kind of speak about, you know, a lot of athletes put their identity in what they do. And when yeah. that then gets stripped, they go through this journey. Well, who am I? You know what I mean? Because right. I, 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 I was this person. Yeah. And so can you just kind of talk about that journey where your identity, like you had said, I mean, you're, you're the caddy for the number one golfer in the world. I mean, you're on the highs of highs. And then yeah. that journey where you then find your identity in Christ. Yeah, exactly. So I, I would have, I'll kind of have two stories to share, especially with the young athletes out there. Uh, the first one is going to be my boss, uh, Webb Simpson. For those of you that you know aren't familiar with Webb, Webb's a top twenty player in the world. He's been on seven Cup teams already. I think four Ryder Cups, three Presidents Cups. Uh, won the 2012 U.S. Open, 2018 Players Championship, and Webb has been a really good player for a long time. But in college, uh, he was at his senior year at Wake Forest, and Webb was a first-team All-American, but he always wanted to win their ACC championship. It was at a course right by where he grew up, and he loved it, called Old Town. And the first three years he went there, he finished in the mid-30s, which is terrible golf for him at the time. And he put so much pressure on himself, he wanted to win this tournament so badly. Um, So this is his senior year. It's his last chance, and he wins the ACC championship by eight shots. He breaks the all-time scoring record. And he had finally accomplished what he had set his mind to his entire. And he just that night, he was just so happy. He woke up the next morning and he had this massive feeling of 
like sadness and depression, and he did not know what it was. He had no idea. Um, kind of struggled throughout that day, and he called a, a mentor of his at the time that was a pastor at a local church um, and just said, hey, I just got to talk to you about some things. I don't know what's going on. never really felt this before, blah, blah, blah. And the pastor laughed. Um, and he said, Webb, you know, congratulations. This is your first example of what it's like to set an idol, to meet the idol and accomplish the idol and realize it cannot fulfill you. Wow. And so Webb puts all of his hope in, if I accomplish this, I'm going to feel this. Yes. And that, that this for all of us generally is going to be, I'm going to feel complete. I'm going to feel whole. I'm going to feel satisfied. I'm going to feel proud. And the truth is, yeah, you may feel that for eight hours, 12 hours, one week, whatever it is, but it doesn't last. Um, and I think it's one of the biggest things. There is nothing wrong with being a great athlete, nothing. It is a gift, and you should use that gift to glorify God if you're a believer. And if you're not a believer and you know you, you don't follow Jesus as your Savior, use that gift to give back. Use that gift because you'll see what it does to your heart. Um, and pretty soon God will start transforming that heart without you even knowing. But my last uh, story, I said I had two for you. My last story, besides my own, you know, I, I played on the PGA Tour and my game had left me. And that little bit. My last is, it's one of my favorites, uh, Tom Brady. And Tom is not a believer. So, again, those of you that are listening that think that we're just talking about those who, uh, who believe in God, who believe in Jesus as our Savior. I'm not talking about that, but Tom Brady had just won his third Super Bowl. And he was doing an interview, I believe, with Barbara Walters. And Tom was doing this interview, just won his third Super Bowl in four years. He was the Super Bowl MVP. I think he might have won league MVP that year. He's married to a supermodel. He's got more money than he could ever know. He's living in a 15,000-square-foot home. And, you know, we all, I think most kids would grow up thinking, man, I'd love to be a quarterback. Man, I'd love to be a starting quarterback sure. in high school. I'd love to be a starting quarterback in college. Oh, could you imagine being a starting quarterback in the NFL? Well, how about being the best that's ever lived? Right. And that's who, that's who Tom was. And Barbara talks to Tom and says, I mean, this is it. What else can you accomplish? I mean, you've got this great family, this great house. You're the best quarterback that's ever lived. You're making all this money. Three of the last four Super Bowls, blah, blah, blah. And Tom drops his head to the ground, and he looks back up as if he's about to cry. And he says, he goes, I think it's Barbara again, and anybody can look it up. Um, but he goes, you know, I think, God, is this all there is? I mean, is this all there is to it? I just have this feeling inside like there's something more. Wow. And I'm jumping up saying, yes, there is. There is more. <laughs> Man, yes, the answer is yes, because if you think there's more, the answer is more. Yes. Because no one can live up to what he's lived up to in the sports world. I mean, we can't. It's impossible right. what he's done. And I'm not a New England Patriot fan, believe me. But <laughs> all in that moment, I just want to jump up and scream and say, yeah, there is something more. And and the answer is God. And, and there, for me, you know, it's just opening yourself up to that true gift um, uh, of what God has. And he's pulling at your strings. Um, and remember, we do nothing to earn it. It is just a great, gracious gift from the Father, and it's free. Uh, you know, every other world religion, uh, there's only one difference between ours and every other one. All, they're all the same. They just have different numbers, different um, either entities or men that lead that charge. But ours is two things. First of all, Jesus said that he would die and be raised again from the from the grave, and he did it. Um, over 500 people witnessed this. And the second thing is this, that uh, it's a free gift of grace. You don't have to go up the mountain to God. Yeah. He came down to us. 
um, and that people that try to compare all religions are the same. They're not. Ours looks different in a lot of different ways, and that's because, in my opinion, it's the truth. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Now, when you look back at your journey, you had mentioned that as, as, a, as a kid, like you were able to speak Christianese, like you were able to say the right things and have the right conversations and kind of go through the motions. But as you look back, you're like, I'm not sure if I was saved. Is there anything that you think um, could have been done differently? Anything that um, – I'm just trying to – like how – when you talk to kids, when you talk to student athletes, yeah. what do you say to them? And, and just students in general, what do you say to yeah. them You know, to where it's not – oh, well, you've got to wait until you're older to put your faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. So two things. The first thing, I, I really want to make sure they understand the gospel because a lot of us think we do or think we did and we didn't. And I try to summarize the gospel in one way because I also get people that say, I, I don't understand how religions cause more deaths um, and war and, you know, religion causes such divide and all that. And you know what I tell them? I was like, yes. And they're like, what do you mean? Yes. I was like, you're right. Religion <laughs> does do that. I was like, but, you know, there's there's a saying in the Bible that, you know, those red words are really important. Well, the truth is the black words in the Bible are really important, too. Mm. For those of you that don't know, the red ones are where Jesus was speaking. Um, and so we changed the color profile because of their importance. They should be. The black ones are really important, too, so we don't want to get rid of those. But, um, you know, Jesus was one of the biggest—no, I don't want to say one of the biggest— was the biggest advocate against religion when he walked on earth. Yeah. And people don't understand that. And he was against the religious leaders of the time. He spent his entire ministry. And, uh, you know, the, what we have written his ministry is about a four-year stretch um, before he was crucified. But all he spoke against was the religious leaders, the Pharisees at the time. And uh, I see it everywhere. So I try to tell these kids, guys, it's about developing a relationship with Jesus Christ. First of all, you have to do something with who is Jesus. You have to. And people don't do that. They're like, well, you know, Jesus was a good moral teacher. Nope. Right. He was right. either the son of God or he was insane. Amen. the charlatan. Yeah, that's it. That's all he was. Yep. Because if you believe he was a great moral teacher and he wasn't the son of God, well, he was a prophetic liar and a manipulator and a charlatan. Yeah. Or he was exactly who he said he was, which was the son of God. And he said, I want a relationship. And he said, you know, um, he, he said to his followers, he goes, what good is it for you to know God, but yet I never knew you? Or to follow God and to know the scriptures and be able to recite the Bible, but not know me. And I think for me, when I start learning that, I'm like, man, you have to be so careful that you don't just know the words, you know the Father, and you know the Son. And so I try to tell him that. And the next thing I try to say is, um, when Webb called me to go work for him, he, he makes fun of the story, but I interviewed him. I was my reputation was pretty strong at the time, and I, I knew I was in a good place, and Webb was struggling on the tour. He had just kept his card, and I knew he was a great believer. And I asked him this hard question. What do you think God wants for you out of your career? Because I've seen real great followers in the Lord think that God doesn't want great things for them because that might be misusing their talents. And that's not true at all. They've been given a huge platform. Amen. And to be able, yes, to be able to share the gospel. And Webb said, no. He goes, I know it's my platform. God has given me this ability. This is not my ability. Mm. I did not create these hands. I did not create this ability to do what I do. I want to use it to glorify God. But the way I have to do that is I've got to hire a better team. I need to hire the best caddy. I need to hire the best coach. I need to hire the best team so I can help 
get to the place that I think the Lord has me. Wow. And so all that being said, I try to share that with the young guys. And then just remember, be great, work hard, get in the gym, get technically correct. Just don't forget who the most important thing is, and that is your relationship with Jesus, and that'll never be taken for granted. And if you fail, it's okay. Repent, get back up the next day. The mercies are renewed each and every morning, and get right back at it again. Amen. Um, and it's yeah, and it's the repetition of that. And you know, it's what what we would call progressive sanctification. But all that means is just a bunch of big words. All that means is just trying to be more like Jesus every day. And mm. um, one of the crazy things is in this world is that. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we're going to realize how far away we are. Yeah. But it should start looking like that more and more every day. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then when you began this transformation, you know, later when you eventually put your faith, you know, rededicated and was bapt- were baptized, was there an aspect of God that you saw for the first time? Like, uh, well, you know, a-, a lot of people, especially in the religious camp, fail to see the love of God. Failed to have experienced mm. the love of God. So was there a, a, an aspect that, man, you just – God revealed that to you. He allowed you to experience it, and it was in that moment that he just captivated your heart. Wow. Um, what a great question, Mike. I don't think I've had that one before. Let, let me think about that just for a second. Yeah, I mean, you're fine. My, my, yeah, my first answer would be the word grace understanding what that is for the first time. I had heard the word, you know, you say grace. I don't even really know what that means now, but like, it's basically just giving thanks. But grace is that again, free, never ending gift of love that God gives us. Um, no matter how much we failed and anybody out there that's listening, if you think you failed more than I had, the answer is no, I have failed in every way imaginable. Um, I have, I have such love for this world sometimes that is not healthy. Um, I love the accolades of other people. I love nice things. I love a nice home, a nice car. I love success on the golf course. I love um, all these little different areas. I love all the little toys. I like, you know, a boat and these other areas. And what ends up happening is it's okay to have those things as long as you're not putting those on the pedestal above your father. And kind of going back to that is God's gift of grace and his gift of love is that he loves us right where we are. We repent. He strengthens us. We move on. And I think that would be the first thing I never truly understood um, growing up that God has shown me over and over this morning. He showed to me again. I had to, my son's five and a half years old. He just happens to have Down syndrome. And, you know, I've realized to that, that his Down syndrome is a gift. People view it as, and they say they're sorry. And, and I'm not mad that they say they're sorry, but I try to inform them. Don't be. He's perfect. John nine, one and three, one to three says that you know, who, uh, what happened for this blind man to be, you know, on the, on the corner of the street. And this is the disciples asking Jesus who was with him every day and just said, why is he blind? His sins are his parents' sins. And Jesus just said, no, it's so that, you know, the love of my father can be displayed through mm-hmm. him. And here's my son. He's five and a half years old. He's already taught his daddy more in the five and a half years than I learned in my first 42. Amen. And I, I and I look at this boy and he sees the world the way it's supposed to yes. be seen, which is for its goodness. Yes. And I think that once again, God started working on my heart and showing me his grace. I see more of the world towards goodness. And I see some of me just for my personal badness, which just means I'm just by nature and nurture. I'm a sinner and I just need the strength of God every day. And without the Lord, I wouldn't want those things. I wouldn't want 
to think of the Lord first. I wouldn't want our foundation has given over a million dollars in the last eight years. I wouldn't have wanted a right. million bucks. I would, I'd say, yeah, I'll give you a hundred. Let me have the million back. Yes. Yeah. And I'll go have some fun with those things and I'll go build a nice house. I'll let people come over. That'll be my way of right. showing. Right. Well, we obviously know that's not the way. Um, that giving back is supposed to look. So well, and I just de- all of that kind of encompassed is, is learning how to give back, and the Lord has shown how mm. powerful that is. Amen. And and I, I, we're going to get to your son and your foundation here shortly, and I'm excited to uh, share that story, you know, for you to share that story with our listeners. But getting back to grace, you know, the one thing that I have found on my journey and I, I became a Christian similar to you. You know, I grew up Jewish. I became a Christian at uh, 27 years old. Um, okay. But one of the things that I struggled with, and I hope our listeners, you know, it's that fine line. You know what I mean? Like you hear God's grace is it, 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 it's it's new every day. You know what I mean? It's it's always there. And you sometimes it's very easy to say, well, he's going to forgive me. So. I can fall. You know, I, mean? I, I can do this because God's grace is enough. And it's one of those things where it's like, yes, but, you know, like it is, it is. That's absolutely true. But man, when we are in a love, it, that doesn't give us a free pass to do whatever we want. Right. Because when we are right. in a loving relationship where our heart has been captivated by the Father and, and just we have surrendered our life to Him, you said it earlier. It's it's about trying to have our lives reflect Jesus more and more every single day, and the fact that God's grace is sufficient doesn't give us a free pass to willingly uh, sin just because we know He's going to forgive us. And that's a tough line, you know what I mean? That's it is, and I, I think one of the things you have to be careful of there is if you catch yourself doing that over and over, is just to spend some quiet time with the Father and just making sure that your heart is in this and not your head, because that's what I tell people. I, I spoke, like I said, Christianese. I, I I talked about Jesus. I prayed. I tithed. I went to church every Sunday. I did all of these things, but looking back now, that was all in my head. Mm. It was not in my heart. There was not a heart transformation. I was doing these things so I could feel a little bit better. I was doing these things so I could release some of the guilt in my life. I was doing these things so I would look better in front of other people. I was doing these things to get the accolades from other people. I, I was doing it for all those reasons and for the wrong ones where if I'm doing it through my heart because of what God's done for me to try to do it for other people. And now the way I treat other people is so much more natural and loving versus before having to kind of fake it a little bit. Like, yeah. okay, I'm just going to say the right thing and do the right thing and have to work hard at it because I'm going to fail if I'm working hard at it on my own versus mm-hmm. if I'm doing it through my heart with the Lord backing me, I'm going to fail a lot less. And you had mentioned something right before that. You said, you know, if you find yourself doing something over and over, you know, get get be quiet before God. And and so, can you just kind of talk about your, uh, what your God time looks like? You know, what what does that what what's that look like for you? Yes. So it's an area in my life that is a constant struggle. Um, and I'm very very fortunate with Webb and the men that he has around him to be privileged to a lot of men that are just so strong in their faith. And there's one thing all of them have in common. Their quiet time is in the morning, every one of them. It's one morning, it might look like 15 minutes in the Word, um, open them up, maybe they're going through a reading plan at the time, or maybe they're just reading through the Psalms or the Proverbs, and then 15 minutes of prayer time. Some mornings, if they have longer, it could be an hour. Some mornings, if it's a little less, if the kids get up early, it might be 15 or 20 minutes, but it's every single morning. 
I struggle with that in the mornings. Um, I love my sleep and I don't seem to get enough of it. And so my quiet time is a little, a little bit less structured. Yeah. Um, a lot of times I will have mine at night. Um, I have been warned about that from more people that are a lot smarter than me, have a lot more wisdom than me that have been through this life a lot more about not doing that just because it's a little bit harder things to get. Um, and somebody said, you know, it, it would be the same thing as waking up in the morning and brushing your teeth at night because you needed to wake up, you know, you need to sleep a little bit more so you can brush your teeth at night, not in the morning. <laughs> While it's still good to brush your teeth at night, yes, you need to do it in the morning um, as well because it starts your day off better. You smell a little bit better, you feel a little cleaner, <laughs> you're ready to attack the day. And, for, and so I think quiet time should definitely be in the morning. Jesus did all of his quiet time. Well, he did it throughout the day, but Jesus woke up before the disciples every morning. Uh, before the sun came up and spent time in the Word. And I always tell people about that. He spent time in prayer, praying to his Father, which is one and the same. And so, like, we know that if he had to wake up in the morning and he needed to spend time in prayer with the Father, we desperately need to do the same thing. Um, and so I think the quiet time should look more in the morning time. I struggle a little bit in that area um, to, to get that more dialed in. Uh, I, man, what you were saying, that, that just hit home. I'm like you. I love my sleep. I never seem to get enough of it. I'm more of a night person. Um, you know, and I used to go through the battle of like, yeah, I could do it in the morning, but I'd be doing it for the sake of doing it. But man, if I can do it a little later, God will have all of my yeah. heart, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, I, 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 I totally yeah. get where you're coming from. And I, I'm so thankful for your transparency there and just your, your willingness to say, Hey, th- this is a struggle yeah. of mine because I think it, it's important for our listeners. You know, they're going to, they're going to span the whole spectrum of, of, uh, spiritual maturity. There's going to be some new believers, yeah. some people that aren't believers, and then some people that have been believers their whole life. And just to hear that there's no perfect formula for this. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's a relationship, and it's intimacy, and it's it's having that willingness and this desire. Man, there's no one else I would rather spend time with. And, you know, it's going to look different from each person. You know, and all God wants is God, God just wants us, you know, and so that's so important. That's so important. I do want to clarify one thing, too, because you brought up a very good point. Now, there's a Christian term called legalistic legalism, and basically it just means trying to be right before God by our acts, um, by if I do this a certain way, if I act a certain way, then God's going to have favor. I mean, and that's and that's not true. And it's, it's people that would say, well, if you're a Christian, you should never fly. You should never have a nice car. Well, that's not true. That's legalism. It's, it's about where your heart is. Um, but one thing I want to say is that if your time is nighttime and you shine and you spend great time with the Lord, do it. Get after it. Like, go get it. It does not mean you're wrong. It doesn't mean anything else. I've just seen through the wisest people that follow the Lord in the way that I want to. They all do it in the morning. But I do, I do want to say I don't want anybody to be listening, thinking, well, does that mean if I do it at night that I'm wrong? No, absolutely. There is no wrong time. Right. In the middle of the day, I pray throughout the day probably 10 or 15 times. Just They could be small conversations, just if my heart's in the wrong spot or if I'm losing patience or if I'm getting angry or if the traffic's bad or if my son's not listening. If, hey, if my wife's not listening, that still happens <laughs> sometimes, too. Love you, honey. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but any of those things throughout the day, too. So I just I do want to make sure that, like you said, doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means I think it's a little bit better time spent if we do it. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, and and you're you're very outgoing. You've got a great personality, and you know, um, it, it this conversation's been incredibly easy. You know, but it's different 
just having conversations with people and sharing your faith with people. And so how, how did you navigate that? What, like when you put your faith in the Lord, were you so transformed that you're like, I just have to tell everyone? Or was there a process of getting comfortable? And and, and I hate to even use the word comfortable, but uh, getting to yeah. the point where you felt confidence to share this yeah. regardless of how the conversation would go after that. Well, I think the cool thing for me was people noticed there was something very different very quickly. Um, by the time 2011 came and I was back out on tour, um, first of all, I had a new boss. Said all my language had changed. Um, uh, my uh, maybe the jokes I was telling had changed. I was caring a little bit more about other people, and so things I was different. And so people started asking, "Hey, you know, you seem happier or gentler or whatever else." I would just say, "Hey, this is why." I would just share my testimony. That was all. Um, and I made sure that every single time someone asked that question, that I had a go-to basic statement. Now I didn't come off as a statement. I made sure it was in a, like a conversational form, but like that they knew what Jesus had done to me. And I was able to condense my story in about a three minute stretch. And I would tell some people the story and they'd be like, yeah, I don't know about all that, blah, 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 blah. And they'd be gone. I would tell some other people about it. And they'd be like, Oh, okay, whatever. Then I would tell other people about it. And they're like, really? That's amazing. So tell me more. Mm. And then I would tell them more. And then I started sharing my phone number with a lot of people. And I know this could be hard for you to believe. I'm actually introverted by nature. I don't believe and that's it. Another thing that, I know. I know <laughs> I'm people just kidding. I'm that. Just but that's another thing that God has changed in me. It just kind of changed my whole personality. I went from being very introverted, very inward, to being a lot more extroverted, a lot more you know willing and, and desirable for relationships outside of just my own close-knit family and friends. And um, that started changing. And then the last thing was is, uh, again, another term that some people might not be familiar with, but apologetics, yeah. which is all apologetics is, is for us being able to have conversations with those of different beliefs. So it might be if I have um, a Muslim gentleman that might be sitting next to me on the plane to be able to have a conversation with him, not tell him he's wrong, uh, but just to ask him why he believes and understand enough about his religion to be able to have a conversation to challenge him on some issues. Uh, Jehovah's Witness, Witnesses, to be able to know enough about what they believe to challenge them. You just said you grew up Jewish. To be able to know enough about what the Jewish religion believes to have a true conversation with them and, yeah. and bring the Bible out and ask, okay, so what do you do with the statement by Jesus? Um, you know, it will, obviously, if you're Jewish and you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it's a little bit different. But then you might go back to the Old Testament and say, okay, well, what do you believe that a Messiah is going to come? It's going to look like this. And then this was Jesus' life, and this is how he lived it. Or, you know, to understand what Muhammad looked like. Um, uh, and just be able to talk about the other religions and do it in a kind way, but also a knowledgeable way, an intellectual way. Because you can't have those conversations if you don't know what they believe. Absolutely. Um, because knowing what they believe and disarming them and not coming off as aggressive is going to make them more apt to hear what you have to say about what you believe. And so that's kind of how I try to go uh, across those things. I'm not great at it. I need to be a little bit more um, fearless in it. Um, and that's that's still a, a progress that I'm that I'm working through. Uh, it's, that That is gold right there. And, you know, I, I think that's one of the saddest things for me is, you know, we're all, regardless of what your religion is, we're all passionate about it. You know what I mean? For and sure. so it's so for difficult sure. – 
to find those opportunities to where you can just have a conversation. And hey, this is what I believe and this is what you believe. And no one's going to convince you to believe their religion. And so I think it's one of those things where our job isn't to convince people. If we if if we had the potential to do that, I'd have done that for my family a long time ago, you know, but we can't. And you said you just share what God has done in your lot in your life. And I think that, that I'm sorry. No, no, no I'm sorry. Oh. No, no, that's it. No, I, I was trying to say that's it. That's exactly right. And, and and I just think, you know, our job is to just say, man, here's what like all I can speak to is what God has done into my life. And um, it plants a seed. You know, and hopefully does, there's enough sure. seeds planted that eventually that thing just sprouts. Um, you know, and, and I, you had also said one other thing that I think was was so powerful, and that I hope people heard. Um, you said you had a condensed version of your story. I think it's so important that we work on a three minute yeah. version of just what if somebody came up to us and we shared how can we communicate it in a way that they don't we don't throw so many christian terms out there that they they're freaked out by it you know how do we communicate exactly. it in a way that they can understand and and i think mike that's so valuable and i actually kind of did it when you asked me at the beginning of this like a little bit of my story but mike your story is so powerful too growing up in a religion obviously that believes in the Bible, believes in God, believes in the Old Testament of the Bible, but doesn't believe in the New Testament versions of Jesus being the Son of God. Right. So, like, that is a powerful, powerful story about, hey, how did you come to that point? And you could you have probably a one-hour version. You probably got a 30-minute version, a 15-minute version. You probably have a one-day version. And <laughs> I'm kind of the same way. I could do a whole podcast. I could do an hour podcast on just – my upbringing and my and how the Lord wooed me into into Him and to understanding that Jesus is the Son of God and and how that looks and what that looks like. But you also need to have about a two minute version and that still talks about the grace that was shown and what it's done for you. And I think that's valuable. And spend time on it, just like yeah. you would spend time on your fantasy football league. <laughs> spend time uh, on really understanding and having you know your testimony ready and. If not, if you're just getting in, if, if the Lord has just saved you, or if you're just starting to, hey, what is this all about? Pick up the Bible. Read it. Yeah. I would say, hey, you know what? Pick up the New Testament. Um, start right at the very beginning and just slowly read. Get a book that's easier to read. Maybe do it with commentary. There's a ton of good information out there. And just read and come to your own conclusions. And I believe that God will show himself to you. Absolutely. Oh man, this has been this has been so good. This has been so good. And so now I, I want to just venture a little bit. How does one become a caddy? Is this something you had desired to be? You knew your golf career would one day come to an end, and uh, when that day come, came, you'd like to be a caddy. Or how did you get into that? Yeah, I never dreamed I'd be a caddy. Um, I was uh, I was a good player, not a great player. I was a good player in college, um, won national championship there at Florida, and then I got my tour card right out of college um, and was on the PGA Tour at 24 years old and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. But I knew I wasn't good enough yet, and that wasn't me being negative. I just physically I wasn't good enough yet. and I struggled on tour, ended up ripping up my rotator cuff and labrum, had surgery, and when I got back after surgery, I was never the same player again. My mind had kind of left me. I struggled mentally with confidence. Um, my body still had struggled. And 
So 99 was the first time where I started falling into a little bit of a depression. I knew my golf career was over. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I started teaching full-time. Um, and I love I loved coaching golf, teaching golf. I love to get back the things that I had learned. Just I wasn't making a ton of money. Um, and I knew there was something else out there. And uh, eventually, DJ Singh was a friend of mine I used to play and practice with out at Ponte Vedra. He called me one day and his caddy was taking a couple weeks break to uh to go do something and said hey would, would i want to come out for a week and and i did and that one week i made a, a little change in his golf swing and he played played well and at the end of the week he asked me to be his caddy uh and so i make fun i tell people i went from making eighteen thousand dollars a year to making that about per week with each so <laughs> uh things changed quickly and so me and Veach worked together about three and a half years and after i left dj i still didn't really know what i wanted to do i i kind of still wanted to teach full-time i didn't really think caddying was still the answer but jerry kelly uh, had called me at the time and i went to go work for jerry and me and jerry had some success won a couple tournaments played on president's cup team together and then i knew okay i actually have a talent here it's something i'm good at Um, my reputation was climbing quickly because of the success i had with bj and jerry and so that was kind of it then my first young guy was sean o'hare in 2007 and we had a lot of success quickly too and so then I started realizing how much I loved what I did. Having a young guy, somebody that didn't quite know the ropes yet, had not learned all the uh, things that I had learned through time. And so that was the time I realized I love this. I sleep great at night knowing I don't have to worry about those four-footers the next day. Mm. Um, I could make a good living um, and still get back at the same time. So uh, very quickly, that was been 2007. That was kind of when I knew, all right, this is what I'm probably going to do for the rest of my career. So what does the life of a caddy look like? Um, there are good aspects and bad. Um, if you're single, you don't have a family, uh, life as a caddy is great. Uh, you travel a lot. You see a lot of the world. You're gone a lot, gone 30 weeks a year. Um, you make great money. Uh, you get to stay competitive, meet great people, have great relationships. All of those are positives for me being a husband and a father of two, a 14 year old and a five year old, the road can be really hard. Um, it can get dark at times. Uh, I had six straight weeks on the road at the end of this year and man, after the third week, I just started going dark. I started getting Mm. sad, feeling, uh, feeling depressed, just missing the family a lot. And I'm going to change that next year. We have to play six in a row almost every year at the end of the year, just the way the schedule falls. And, Next year, I'm going to spend a little extra money, kind of get off my high horse there and spend a little money instead of trying to save it all the time um, and bring the family out for a couple of weeks because I, I can't do that stretch again. It, it was really, really tough. And, um, I had gone to a place I hadn't been in a long time. and um, Thank goodness again for great friends and for a great savior that I was able to get through it, but it, it was tough. So again, great job. Love what I do. It's just with a family, it can be tough being away from home so often. Yeah. Absolutely. So you wake up, like, what, what does a day look like? What does a day, a, a, a tournament round day look like for you? Yeah. So a tournament round day for me, uh, it depends on where we are. Let's throw out like a major, a course that I don't know as well. Um, if we tee off at 12 o'clock, I'm generally going to get the golf course around 8 o'clock. I'll go out, I'll have a little breakfast, I'll grab a pen sheet, and I'll go out and I'll walk the golf course for a little while. In the old days, I would have had to walk all 18, but now with PGA Tour Live and all this stuff, you can watch a lot more golf on your computer. But I'll still go out and walk nine holes, see the condition of the golf course, see if it's wet, if it's firm, see which direction the wind's coming out of. I might look to see what a couple of players that are similar length to us, what they're using off the tee. 
that'll take me probably an hour and a half at the most. I'll come back in around 10. I'll grab another little bite to eat. Uh, I'll fill out my pen sheet and my green book, and then I'll meet Webb usually around an uh, hour and 15 minutes before we tee off. We have a ritual that we do. We go through each hole, go through what we're going to hit off the tee, just so we're clear when we get to the golf course that you know we don't have to worry about you know arguing about what club it is. So we get out to the course, and then it's, it's kind of time to go. Typical rounds around four hours and 45 minutes for threesomes. Um, and so we'll get down around five, uh, go out, maybe hit a few more balls and usually be done around six. So a typical day is about a 10 hour a day. Uh, there are certain events that we know really, really well, that it, the days are going to look a lot less Greensboro, which we've played the last 10 years in a row. It's 95 degrees. If we tee off at noon, I might not get to the course till 10 instead of eight. And when the round's done, we might putt for 10 minutes and we're out of there. So that day might get condensed from 10 hours down to seven. And then a week like the British Open, my hardest days are Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before the tournament starts. I'm usually at the course around 14 hours a day. Wow. Just learning the golf course, learning where the missed spots are, uh, learning, you know, different wind conditions there. If it's out of the right or out of the left, the courses can change so drastically. So uh, it all kind of depends on where you are, what time of the year it is for heat purposes, uh, how well you know the golf course, and then obviously at the same time, you know, how comfortable you are with like where his game is, how much practice is taking place with him. Now, when you go to these courses and you're learning the course, are you out there playing it to see how it plays or are you, are your, is your game and Webb's game so different that it's hard to replicate how it would play? Well, yeah, well, we're not allowed to play. Okay. That that part's kind of taken out. Yeah. Caddies aren't allowed to play the golf course. It's just the players, uh, caddies, coaches, no one else is allowed to play. So that's kind of taken out. Mine and Webb's game are they're they're pretty similar. Um, obviously, he's a lot better than me in about every area, but they're very similar <laughs> in what we're trying to do. So no, it's just about going out and understanding the way the golf course will play, where missed spots are, and just knowing what to do from those areas. And and I I don't know. I saw a, a video of you hitting a pretty nasty blindfolded <laughs> shot uh on facebook a little while ago so you, you got a good blindfold game i i know that yeah, i do i do I, my, my game's good for my end of the world uh, i'm still a scratch <laughs> player and so good but That's again awesome. compared to those boys I, I can't hold a candle to them but uh, but i do think being a good player and playing constantly does help you in what you're trying to do as a caddy so what is you know obviously he's one of the best in the world you know you caddied for vj singh the at the time the number one player in the world and so what perspective do you bring that they can't – and I'm not trying – this isn't to d- downgrade you. You know what I mean? But, like, what right, is it right. that you bring that they're, like, they can't just figure it out on their own? Is it just a different yeah, set of so, eyes? Is it just you're you're able to take the emotion out of it and kind of – So, yes and yes. Yes okay. to both of those two. <laughs> a different set of eyes and I'm allowed – I'm able to take the emotion out, which is huge. So big. Because when I play, I still struggle with the emotion of golf. But when I caddy, I'm not struggling with the emotion of golf. And so that part becomes easier. But I, you see this sometimes in sports, and I see it a lot in our sport. When you get players that have been really, really good since they were young, there's certain things they didn't learn that I had to learn. Mm. So I was not naturally talented so I had to learn things they didn't have to learn. Yeah. So I had to learn what to do at a hard pan into the grain with, you know, 
uh, tight grass. I didn't learn that, or they didn't learn. They just would open up a 60 degree and just hit it. Right. Well, they didn't learn that. Well, you know, there's three other shots you can hit from here. You can hit a three wood from around the green. You can putt this, you can hit a bump five iron. You can hit a bump eight iron. Um, you can use a putter grip, stick the heel up in the air and use just the toe to make contact to make sure you don't dig, you know, around the greens at a heavy rough. It's more than just a splash shot. You got, you know, a back foot with the toe leading and you kind of, I call it a wrist rolling draw where the toe beats the heel to the ball. And it's going to come out clean and rolling every time. So all those little manipulations to learn, you know, if you want to take five yards off a shot, just narrow your stance and the ball's going to go five yards shorter. You don't change anything else. You just take your stance from me and however wide it only is shrink it in half and the ball's going to go five yards shorter. Um, you know, if you need to cut it, just open the face. That's all. And so all these small little things that they didn't learn because they were so good, they could do everything that at that level, you've got to have this full range of ability to do these shots. And I will say a lot more of the younger guys growing up know some of these things like this, like Justin Thomas. The first time I went out with a guy, I was so blown away with the things that he already knew at 24 years old. Um, I wasn't expecting that Jordan speech when he came out. And I just think nowadays, because there's so much money in the game and Tiger made the game cool, but these kids are learning things at a younger age and uh, they're coming out much more ready to play great than they were 15 years ago. And this is the Tiger generation. That's what we're seeing. Sure. They grew up thinking everything he did was normal. (laughs) Um, And and, and we're seeing that in the way they play the game these days. So obviously, you know, Webb's the one that's out there playing. But talk about the mental grind that a round has on you. I mean, I'd imagine that by the end of the day, you're mentally exhausted. By the end of the weekend, I mean, you've got to have a a, a period of time where you just need to mentally decompress. But like you said, you find this, you know, so talk about that. But then also, how do you do it on those weeks where it is back to back to back? Or is that why you think you found yourself in that dark place at that point in time. It, it is definitely mentally exhausted, uh, exhausted. I am 48 now. So there's a physical aspect as well. Now, uh, with that 50 pound bag lugging it around there, it used to not be, it's getting to be more and more now, but the mental aspect is brutal. Uh, you know, the last year's players championship, we had a seven shot lead going into the last day. Um, and, I remember people saying, man, that must have been fun. That must have been easy. And I looked at them all and said, it's the opposite of what that was. It was not easy and it was not fun at all. It was brutal. It was mentally exhausting just trying to get through that round and be focused on what you're trying to be focused on, being focused on getting the job done, staying in the present, not going to the future, trying to talk about things that were not golf-oriented, talking about the NBA Finals, talking about baseball, talking about family, talking about faith, talking about all these different areas. That was the longest, most exhausting. It only took four hours. It felt like 10. Wow. Um, and so when you're in contention, definitely a lot more mental um, strength is needed. Uh, sometimes when we're struggling, I have to be careful. Um, I've been caddying now for 20 years and played competitively for another, what, 18. So that's 38 years. I sometimes get a little complacent when things aren't going well. Um, so that's an area I have to get better at even now. I just, I get a little daydreamy. Um, I get a little bit, uh, complacent with what's going on and I need to be careful in that area. And that's definitely something that all these years has brought a little negative and that's, it's harder for me to get up for mediocrity and I need to, cause those shots matter each year. There's a one point difference between making the tour championship and not. 
Wow. Uh, there could be a one-shot difference between winning that $15 million FedEx Cup or not, or winning the U.S. Open or not. And so those are the areas that I still have to improve on as a caddy. Um, and it's kind of a constant battle. But, yes, the physical aspect is exhausting. Uh, and, and, and the better you're playing, the harder it is. And those six weeks in a row, Webb had two second-place finishes. I think he finished in the top 30 in every event. And so there was a lot of uh, mental energy that was being spent that we definitely had to be careful with. Wow. And and getting back to um, you beginning your journey with Webb and you saying, you know, you inter- you kind of interviewed him, was it important for you at the time to find another golfer that shared your faith or were you kind of just looking at it from the best fit golf, you know, in terms no. of golf? Great question. No, I actually had two offers from two guys that were top 10 in the world. Um and I turned them both down. I was looking for someone. I wanted to have a long-term. Each uh, relationship I'd had was about three to four years. It's just it's stressful. I, I tell a lot of people, it's like a marriage, but with no sex. And that's not a great thing. <laughs> so <laughs> no, people like, it is, it is a tough relationship. It is, you are in the trenches together. It is stressful. It is pressure-packed. And relationships can really run thin. Um, and so I wanted my next relationship to be strong. And so the one thing I was looking at was I wanted to get a believer, but I also needed a guy that was good at golf. And Webb had just kept his card. And that was why during like the interview process, I wanted to make sure he was hungry to be good. And it was very important to me that I went to work for a guy that was hungry to be good at this game, to be great at this game. And he gave me all the right answers. And uh, he tells a funny story when he talks about it. He's like, I called to interview him. I got off the phone, and my wife asked him, what was it like? He goes, honey, like, I don't really know what just happened. Like, I didn't ask him any questions. Like, <laughs> he interviewed me the entire time. Um, and, you know, after five minutes on the phone with Webb, I, I knew that I wanted to go work for this guy. Um, and his because of the way he lived his life, I knew what his faith was like. Without him ever telling me what it was like, I knew it just by the way he acted and behaved. And so for me – that part of it was a challenge and it changed my life making that decision because I now have privilege to want to, I think he's the greatest man I've ever met in my life. Wow. Um, he's the husband I want to be, the dad I want to be, the friend I want to be. He's all of those things encompassed and he's 12 years younger than I am. And yet I look up to him <laughs> That's awesome. because of the way he lives his life. Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. That's so cool. Okay, Paul, so now we're going to transition. A little earlier, you were talking about your son and and, uh, Isaiah and kind of the foundation you guys have, and that's an incredible story, and I'd really love our listeners to – to just kind of if you hear as much as you're willing to share about it, because I I feel like it's an incredible only God story. Um, so I'm going to let you take it away. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so uh, it would have been uh, January 2014. Um, my son Isaiah was born on January 4th, and all was normal except for Michelle's excruciating long uh, uh, labor. Besides that, um, everything was normal uh, for about the first. 15 seconds um, of Isaiah's life, and then things uh, took a downturn pretty quickly. Um, He was whisked away after uh, probably Michelle held him for about 15 seconds. He left um, probably another 45 seconds later. um, They had noticed what looked like a seizure was happening, and so away he went, and our joy quickly turned into, uh, you know, some panic, uh, some uncomfortable times, um, 
within 10 minutes. We had a doctor come in and just said that uh, he's struggling. He has uh, swelling on the brain. He has bleeding um, in his brain and some problems with his lungs. Fluid was filling in his lungs. And that, you know, we need to be prepared uh, to, uh, to possibly lose him. Um, so they asked if, you know, we want to bring a chaplain in and we're like, no, our pastor's sitting out in the, in the lobby. So we brought him in. We just all prayed. I cried profusely. Um, about 30 minutes later, Dr. Tim and got me and said, Mr. Sorry, can I talk to you outside? And so, you know, I thought this was going to be bad news. He goes, I got some things I want to talk to you about, but first let's go see your son. I'm like, oh, okay, that's good. So go into the little area and he's an incubator um and there he was and and uh the doctor proceeded to tell me you know we we have some issues we're going to transport him to Wilson children's hospital um let me tell you what we have right now um tell me about the bleeding on the brain and, and uh the uh the swelling as well and then the uh, fluid in the lungs and then he also said your son has markers for down syndrome he has the semi-increase He's got uh, the fold on the back of the neck. He has the eyes. So he had uh, quite a few of the, uh, you know, the, the looks of a kid with trisomy 21, the triple copy of 21st chromosome. And, um, and that's what he did end up having. Uh, but what happened over the next week, nothing short of a miracle. So they took him away to the hospital. I wasn't allowed to see him until the next morning. Michelle was still in the hospital uh, recovering. So I got to go see him the next morning and, uh, he, by that time, was out of the incubator, and he was in a very, very small bed. And I was able to hold his little hand and pray over him and talk to him and, and that kind of good stuff. And the nurses came in. They were really kind and just said, these are all the things we're doing. You know, he's John us. He, he had everything going against him at the time. Um, but slowly but surely, as they continued to run tests, after three days, they came back to us and said, well, we've got some good news. We don't really understand it, but... Um, you know, the bleeding on the brain, it, it's just gone. We don't really know what happened, but it's gone. We're like, okay, that's amazing. The next day they came back and said, and also there's no swelling on the brain. We're still taking a look at his lungs. We're still running dye through his lungs, make sure everything else is okay. Five days later they came back and said, well, we've got really great news. We have one bit of bad news, but some great news. And um, so I asked for the good news first, and they just said, there's nothing wrong with your son. Um his brain is good. His lungs are good. We have run test after test after test because we don't really understand what happened. Mm. Um, but we cannot recreate anything else that we've seen. So everything's working fine. And I was like, okay, what's the bad news? And they said, well, the bad news is that your son has Down syndrome. And he is less than 1% of the world that babies are born with uh, no prenatal diagnosis. Michelle was over 40 years old. I uh, hope she's not listening, so don't get in trouble <laughs> for, for that. But uh, when she had him or was at 40 years old, and so uh, they had to run some extra tests. And at first, that bothered me, um, just because I didn't really have any understanding of what Down syndrome was. Uh, my wife did, and she's like, that's great. We can handle that. And uh, after seven days, they told us to expect between two and four months in the NICU. And seven days later, we left Wow! and went home. Wow. And very quickly, of course, you know, we live in a time and place now that it was a blessing in hindsight, I think, to not, you know, have the prenatal diagnosis just because I would have just read every article imaginable um, months leading up to the birth. And this way, I just had to kind of cram it all in for Mr. Google telling me all about it and started making some phone calls and reading articles about uh, people that have had these kids. And, um, you know, I get emotional now thinking about it. And I know I said this earlier, but um, if God gave me an opportunity right now, five and a half years later, to take 
that genetic um, anomaly away from him, to take trisomy 21 away from him, the third copy of the 21st chromosome, to take Down syndrome away, um, I wouldn't do it. Um, you know, I believe in John nine, one to three. Um, and I think we've talked about that already, but as the disciples are walking with Jesus, there's a blind man on the corner. And again, um, the disciples didn't understand why he was blind. They assumed that he had done something wrong. And so they asked Jesus that, you know, what did he do wrong or what did his parents do wrong to deserve being blind? What were his sins? Uh, was it his parents or him? And Jesus said, no, it's so that the glory of my Father can be displayed through him. Mm. And I see it with Isaiah now. Um, he sees this world the way it's supposed to be seen, and he teaches me that every day. You know, I, get, I so easily get frustrated. I so easily get entitled. I so easily feel, you know, not justified or wronged. And he doesn't. He sees the, the positive side of everything. And I don't know what that extra chromosome does. Uh, Obviously, worldly, I know what it does. You know, he obviously is going to be a little bit behind physically, a little bit behind um, mentally and educationally. Um, but he's so far ahead of all of us in the way he sees the world. And I have yet to meet a young man or woman or an older man or woman who has Down syndrome who is not just hugely and um, miraculously loved by everyone around them mm. because of the way they make us feel. Yeah. Um, and my son is a bright light. He's been, you know, I've been given a pretty special platform in this world to have worked for the number one ranked player in the world, to have won 20 events and players championship, U.S. Opens. I've caddied in, I think, 11 cup teams now and all these other things. And I have not even touched the platform that my son has already reached um, in his short, uh, less than six years. And it's been beautiful to watch. It's been amazing to see. And I count myself as a blessed father to have an opportunity to raise and to watch this boy grow. Now, don't anybody get me wrong. He is still a pain in the rear end. Still <laughs> is a boy. <laughs> he is a, he is a six, almost six-year-old boy, and he is stubborn, and he does not want to listen and all those things. It's just it's the rest of the stuff that I wouldn't trade for the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, if we could go back just a bit, I heard in an interview um, – you said that no matter what happened with Isaiah in those days, in, in those days right after he was born, where doctors were running tests, he wasn't really with you guys, and you just the future was uncertain. And I heard you say, no matter what happened with Isaiah, we knew it was going to be for the best. <sighs> yeah, and uh, and, and that's know, hard for people to understand. Yeah. I, I remember one of my best friends was in. The waiting room. It was my dad, my pastor, and one of my best friends. His name is Wes, and Wes is not a believer, um, but a dear friend. And I went in, and you know, I I had obviously cried. I'd kind of got all that out, and you know, they were just asking me questions. How you feel? And I just looked up, and I said, "Guys, I've never really truly realized or understood how much God loves us." Mm. But like when I was in there, I realized that I already love this five-hour-old baby boy more than I can imagine loving anything. And the crazy thing is my father in heaven loves him infinitely more. I can't put a finger on how much more he loves my son. And so many people get wrapped up in being a believer, not being a believer, religion and everything else. Here's the news. Whether you know that God is there, whether you know Jesus, son of God, God loves you deeply and desperately right where you are. And I knew in that moment that 
whatever happened to Isaiah, it was going to be not only for Isaiah's best, but for all of our best. And I would have given my life to save his in that moment. But the crazy thing is, is God sent his son to die on that cross because he gave his life so that we could have that same relationship with the father. And in that moment, I just realized, wow, he loves us so much more than I can even imagine. He loved that baby boy infinitely more. And it was comforting in the moment. It doesn't mean that I, I didn't have hard days. It didn't mean that I wasn't emotional. I just held, I held so much comfort in knowing that. And I could truly feel it for the first time um, in that moment. Wow. That's incredible. Crazy. That's a, crazy. Praise God. Praise it God. Is. It's emotional. I'm crying now. I, yeah, I'm it, fighting it, it, it back. Does, the tears always flow. Yeah, the, the tears always flow easily. And they're good tears. Yes. They're uh, they are comforting, joy-filled tears. Mm. Uh, they're, just, they're just emotional that we have a God that no matter how far away we run from him, he chases us down and loves us infinitely. Amen. 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 So now you guys, through this, have started the Tesori Family Foundation. And I would love it yes. if you would just kind of share a little bit about why and what it does, what you guys do. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it was something I had always wanted to do ever since I was in college. Um, I played for the University of Florida for Buddy Alexander over there, and we just had a um, a little thing that uh, he always encouraged us all to do. It was not our prerequisite or anything, but that was to go volunteer once a week at any place nearby. It could be a boys and girls club. It could be a senior center, whatever it was. And mine was a senior center. And uh, a lady named Eileen was there. And, of course, her favorite song was Come On, Eileen. So we would listen to that every time. And, and we would play Yahtzee. Uh, we would play Yahtzee for an hour and just talk. And I always been right there. I just, right in that moment, I said, one day I want to start my own foundation. I started dating my wife and my wife, Michelle, she runs a, a business who runs nonprofits for professional athletes. And so I had always told her I wanted to do this. And she's like, why don't we do it now? I was like, no, I don't want to do it. Try and go all out. And she goes, yeah, that's crap is what that is. She goes, you, <laughs> if you can make a difference in one person's life, you start there. And then two and then four. So we started the foundation in 2010 and, uh, between 2010 and 2014, we were able to get back uh, right around $100,000 back. And at the time, we were proud of that and thought that was good. And we were able to, you know, to get back to the local communities of homeless shelters and, um, you know, uh, a lot of the boys and girls clubs and, and kids uh, who had really had some tough upbringings and the senior centers as well. And voila, one thing changed in 2014, and that was Isaiah Tesori. And between 2014 and 2019, we were able to get back over a million dollars. And uh, and only one thing truly changed, and that was that baby boy and the story that brought along uh, with Isaiah. When Isaiah was born, um, the PGA Tour community got together, and they were just beyond family. Uh, I, I actually had no idea. I probably would have argued if people would have said that we were close on the PGA Tour before Isaiah was born, but... I had so many players and caddies reach out and just do incredible things for me, from Teddy Scott to caddy for Webb um, and Adam Hayes and Josh Castle to Bubba Watson, uh, who started a, uh, a trust for Isaiah, and just all these other um, people that stepped up to the plate um, to support us. And just the news got out quickly. And like I said, now we're, we're, I think we're almost we're approaching 1.2 million given back now. Um, and over a million that since 2014, since Isaiah was born, uh, we still do a lot of local stuff, but one of the new things obviously that, that was given to us was a, a purpose and that was the special needs community. And we started our all-star kids clinics. Uh, the first one was 2014 in Greensboro. 
And it's just we do a clinic for 25 kids with special needs. Um, we do one-on-one instruction with PGA Tour players, teachers, and caddies, and also the local first tee chapter. And we introduce them to the game, um, to the game that we love, and we spoil them for the day. They're all-stars for the mm. day, VIPs. They get um, anywhere from uh, – they obviously get a nice swag bag uh, each and every event, and they all get medals uh, and just get to enjoy the game. And, you know, we started that with one. Um, last year, 2000 or 2019, we had five and in 2020, we already had 22 scheduled throughout the PGA tour, uh, season. Wow. And our hope is, uh, by 2025, it'll be at every PGA tour stop. And it's just really grown and it's been a lot of fun to be a part of. And then obviously the local uh, community as well. So, um, we're excited about it. Go visit us at org and just see what we do. Uh, we love giving back a hundred percent of whatever is brought in. We get back. Uh, and it's just, it's been a privilege. It's been a blessing and, uh, something that we get a lot more out of than the people that we're trying to help. You know, and, and as believers, part of our hope is in the fact that in the storm, God's word says he works all things for the good of his glory. And we don't understand it a lot of times. And, and it's, it's just that it's something we cling to, you know? And so in yeah. that moment, you know, uh, when you found out that Isaiah did have downs and, um, you know, that that's, I'm sure, uh, based on what you guys had gone through, you're like, okay, th- this is manageable. Like, we're going to have our son, you know, like we can navigate yeah. this. Did you yeah. ever imagine, you know, so so you, you have faith that when, however this turns out, it's going to be good. Could you ever had, have imagined that Isaiah would have had this type of impact on so many people yeah. so early. I mean, it, it does. Like it, it, I'm, I'm fighting back emotion right here. Exactly. The answer is no way. Yeah, I mean, again, I've been very privileged for the platform I've been given um, to reach people, to talk to people, to um, share my story, my testimony, and everything else. But this little boy um, who, again, had just, just happens to have a, have to, happen to have an extra chromosome of the 21st. And uh, the people he has been able to reach, it's beyond our understanding. One of the funniest things we learned growing up, or growing up uh, when he was growing up, when he was, once we got him home from the hospital and once we started really learning was that typical kids with Down syndrome have two struggles. Number one is their core. Number two is hand-eye coordination. And the two best things to do for that are any core-oriented exercise and golf. Uh. And if anybody's ever seen my wife or know my wife, she is a rock. Which, what I mean by she's a rock because she's a rock star, but she's also a rock because she loves to train. She loves to work out. She um, she still has a six-pack abs, a six-pack abs at 44 years old. Wow. She still trains and works out all the time. And so... She pretty she pretty much has Isaiah covered as far as the uh, core work goes, and obviously I'm I'm pretty decent at golf still. So <laughs> we knew right away we laughed and look who God chose to give to us or give Isaiah to us and it's us. And that, those are our two biggest strengths uh, as far as the physical realm goes. And so um, we laughed about it right out of the gate. And again, within a few months, and especially as he turned a year old, a year and a half, two years old. And he started getting more and more attention. He's been on the Jumbotron in New York several times. Wow. Um, you know, articles have been written about him and our story and everything else. We realized this this young man is teaching us more than we are here to teach him and to help mm-hmm. him grow. And our hope is, obviously, we can do right by him because I think the Lord will continue to use this boy Amen. to impact the world in just a grave way that 
I not only never could have foreseen, um, and I've had people come up to me and say, I heard you said before, if God gave you a chance to change his diagnosis, you wouldn't. And I, I, think that's, I think that's mean. I think that's wrong. Wouldn't you want your son to have this life? And I just looked at him and I said, I don't know. I mean, I've lived a really privileged life, and yet I had been through so many struggles in my life because of my love for this world. Mm-hmm. And I wish I didn't love the world as much as I do. I wish I didn't love the fame, the notoriety, the money the things, the toys, all of those things that come along with it. I wish I didn't love those things so much and have to fight against my desire to want those things. And he doesn't, and he most likely won't want those things. What he will want is for people to feel loved, Mm. and he he will succeed at that throughout his life. Wow. Amazing. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely amazing. And you had mentioned – you had mentioned your wife and how she is such a rock. And uh, so now I just want to kind of transition a little bit back to golf, but we do have a lot of coaches that listen to the podcast. And, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of ministries out there that, that witness, you know, at FCA, we try and, we try and minister to and through the coach and, you know, the coach is in the limelight, the coach is, you know, he's, he's got the popularity, but then oftentimes there's a wife that's in the background. And the wife is the one that's raising the kids while the husband slash coach is at practice or away at tournaments or away at games. And how has has the, the, the golf community – is there something in the golf community that ministers to your wife? Or how does your wife get fed to where it's not mm-hmm. my husband's in the spotlight, my husband's gone? How does she get fed? Mm-hmm. How does she stay strong? Because maybe there's a coach out there that can listen that, man, his wife is struggling. You know, his wife is struggling and Mm -hmm. and maybe hearing how God has, you know, uh, been working to surround your wife with people, they they could glean some information from that. Yeah, yeah, wow. Um, You know, it's definitely been tough on Michelle. Um, One of the things that are, that is definitely a tough part of being a caddy on the PGA Tour, being a caddy wife is that there is no daycare. Um, We've gone to the tour and tried to say we will pay for it. But there's not. Um, obviously, the tour families, uh, they do have daycare that's provided by the tour uh, for them to have so the wives can come out on tour. They can go support their husband. They can go um, follow them for five or six hours. They can go do certain things. Um, unfortunately, we don't have that. Um, we fought for it, and we're not there yet. Uh, we have got a tremendous commissioner in Jay Monahan, and I'm hopeful that one day we will have something like that, and that will help us get back on the road. But Basically, Michelle gets stuck at home, and I won't say stuck. That's not very fair, but she works full-time. Um, obviously, having a child with Down syndrome, there are some extra things. He has therapy five days a week. Um, just continuing to try to push him and help him grow and help his vocabulary, help his hand-eye coordination and physical capabilities. And so there's a lot of extracurricular thing that, uh, things that happen, and Michelle has struggled. Um, she struggled to find her identity. She has struggled to feel like, She's the mom that she wants to be. She has struggled to feel like she's the wife that she wants to be, to balance that and working full-time. And I don't think there's any great answer. Um, the only thing that has gotten her through is her faith mm. and the people that she has surrounded herself with. Uh, she has struggled in the past kind of secluding herself, which, in my opinion, is what the enemy wants, is for us to seclude ourselves, to yeah. kind of hide out. Um, and she's had to fight that to get herself out of the house, to get herself around people that will pray for her, that will support her, that will talk to her, that will cry with her, that will celebrate with her and do those things. And 
I mean, girls have it so much harder. Um, women have it so much harder than us boys do. You know, um, just there's so many more responsibilities that fall on their shoulders. Uh, you know, I think that uh, um, maybe God could have given them one extra arm. That would have been a good thing. But then I've, I've, I've had some other ladies tell me, yeah, but if he would have done that, we would have another one. There would have been no uh, insight. I think women in particular have that ability to just put their heads down and just get the job done. Whereas men, I think we will just kind of collapse, sit on the couch, at some point, go to bed early. We'll find a way to get our time, and I think it's just not natural for women that they just have that push to be able to to get it done. And you know, I have felt for Michelle, and, and a lot of times the hard part is when you're home. And I know people can relate to this sitting home, but it's not only hard when I'm on the road, but then I come home and I want to help. I want to do everything. Hun, you take it easy. Let me do this. Let me do that. It's almost overwhelming because sure. I'm trying to come in. And I'm trying to serve, uh, but at the same time, she's like, "Hey, settle down. We're in a good flow here." Why don't you just wait for me to tell you what I need you mm. to do? And so there, there's a lot of balances in there uh, in that life, and, and it can be tough. But um, she's a special woman who loves Jesus, and that is the only thing that can get us through some of those times. And uh, hopefully as Isaiah gets a little bit older and my daughter, who's 14, when she gets a little bit older, I think things will become a little easier as far as those uh, those areas are concerned. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one last question that I wanted to ask you before we get into the 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 fun questions is, <laughs> you know, there is kind of a okay. I here's my question. So, how do you balance being one of the guys uh, after golf is done and maintaining your faith? You know, I mm. I, I, I think for any athlete listening. That's always that tightrope to walk. You know what I mean? You want to be, you want to be part of the team. You don't want to be an outcast. But at the same point in time, you have these beliefs that you want to be true to. So how do you how do you navigate yeah. that? So um, the pastor who baptized me in 2010 baptized me and my wife. His name is uh, Jack Millwood, and Jack at the time actually had a secular job. He was, I think, he was in the insurance uh, field, but he had to go to the office. Um, he would do that five days a week, and then on the weekends, you know, he would obviously help run the church, and he would um, give his sermon for the day. He eventually, you know, quit the secular job and went full-time at the church, but um, I asked him that, and he gave a great answer. He said, you know, you, you should never chastise, you should never look down upon, you should never try to be higher than thou or teach in moments. And I said, if you give me an example, he goes, okay, lunch breaks. Lunch breaks, you're going to hear men complain about their wives or about their girlfriends or about how, you know, they don't want me going out and drinking and bowling. Or you might hear dirty jokes or blah, 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 blah. And he, he gave me some great advice. He said, here's what I try to do. He goes, I keep my language the same so I don't all of a sudden go from being someone who doesn't curse or whatever and start cursing. I'm not going to do that. He goes, um, you know, if a joke I think is racist or sexual by nature, demeaning in any way, I, I either will just kind of somehow just kind of slip away real quick or, you know, go maybe make a phone call or I might just not participate in the laughter part of it. Um, or I might, as soon as the joke's over, come back with a clean joke, uh, like right after. Um, and so try to find areas in there. And people are going to notice that you're different. And when they notice that you're different, they're either going to like it and ask some more questions, or if they don't like it, that's okay, too. 
But in that moment, you've still been a light in your own way. And then if somebody does ask a question, you can just say, hey, well, you know, I'm a pastor. This is what I do. He never wanted people to know he was a pastor because people immediately do one of two things. They immediately tend to apologize for their behavior or they have a tendency to like shut down and not like speak because they don't want to. And he goes, no, I want people to feel free around me still to be them. Yeah. And so I, I believe it's the same way with us. Um, obviously, yes. Uh, people know that Webb's, uh, people know about Webb's faith. People know about my faith. Um, but they also have so many misconceptions that I'll try to help them in that. I'll, I'll be drinking a beer and somebody will be like, Oh, I didn't think you're allowed to drink. Of course you're allowed to drink. Um, there's nothing <laughs> in the Bible that says you cannot drink. Obviously there is something in the Bible that says you should not be too much of a drinker of wine. So, which would mean not to get drunk. Um, to set limits that, you know, you, you don't lose control. That might be two glasses of wine. That might be two beers. However you look at it, it's different for each person. But to set that, and that's an act of obedience in our own way. But, you know, to answer those certain questions. Um, and, you know, if jokes are being told or whatever and, and you don't like it, just you either walk away or you don't participate in the laughter part of it or, or however that looks. Um, and then when it comes to advice, you know, if you're asked for advice and, you know, maybe somebody's ripping on their wife or whatever, you look at them and go, here's the crazy thing. That's your wife. You're going to be married to her forever. So how can you make it better? Like, when's the last time you've taken her out on a date? Like, mm. challenge them in certain ways they haven't been challenged. And now they might not come back and ever ask you thing, <laughs> Or they might, they might end up taking their wife out on a date and be like, oh, well, that worked out. Man, and he gave me a different answer than everybody else does. Oh, maybe I'll ask him again at some point. Yeah. So, we let the Lord we let the Lord take care of the rest of it. But it's basically to have your own principles, your own set of values. You stick to those. But I try to say, you know, hey, let, let's not be higher than now. Let's not try to look down. Let's not try to teach in those moments. Unless somebody says, hey, what do you think? And then obviously you're allowed to give your input um, going forward. I try to just be myself and don't try to fit into different uh, molds. I used to do that back when I was I, – I told you before that I was a head believer – Back when I was a head believer, I had about four different personalities. If I was with this group of people, I would act this way. This group of people, I'd act this way. I told you I could speak Christianese with the best of them, and, and I could speak that way. But I've just learned now to try to be a little more raw, uh, let people know I struggle and where I struggle, and then uh, try to set my parameters on how I want to be uh, the man that I want to be and try to make sure I'm that way throughout the day, 24 hours a day. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Mm. Why well, I, I appreciate it. I think all of our listeners are. Uh, <laughs> this has been awesome. This has been awesome, and so I'm. It so, has. I've enjoyed it. Now we're going to transition to one of my favorite segments that we do called Eli wants to know where my eight year old son Eli asks you the hard hitting question that all of America wants to know. Paul, are you ready for it? I am ready. I'm nervous and ready all at the same time. I think those are good emotions to feel in a moment like this. So, E, <laughs> let's go. Hi, Mr. Paul. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm ready for your question. What do you have for me? Have you ever hit a hole-in-one? Yes, I have. I've been fortunate enough to have four hole-in-ones. Wow. Four. That's really good. Four. Very that's pretty good. I had three by the time I was 18 years old, and then I've only had one in the last 30 years. So I think that's kind of the way it goes sometimes. How old were you for your first one? I was 12 for my first one. Um, I think 15 for the second one and 18 for the third. Wow. 
That's impressive. What yep. do you think, E? <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. Well, we That's thank you. Listen, buddy, you got plenty of time to catch up to me, so I think you will. <laughs> he did take golf lessons for the first time this year, so. Uh, I love it. That's well, a good thing. Keep going with it. Keep going with it. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Awesome. Well, great job, Eli, and great job, Paul. And so now we're going to get into our segment that we do in every episode. It's called Three and Out. I ask the same three questions. Um, and so let's just start with the first one. What is the last book that you read? <laughs> so if any of my friends are listening right now, they are really going to be excited to hear this because I'm not <laughs> a huge reader. I read a, I read a lot online. Um, I obviously read my Bible daily. Um, I'll, read, uh, <laughs> I'll read the sports. I'm a big Atlanta Braves, uh, University of Florida fan, Jags fan, so I'll read that kind of stuff. But I read a book recently because I'm trying to work on this in my own home. It's called on my own home. It's called Tech Wise Family. I'm not sure the author. I think it might be Andy Crouch. I know Crouch is the last name, but it's called Tech Wise Family. And basically, the premise of the book is that technology—it's it, a blessing. It helps our lives. There are so many aspects of technology that are a good things. But as we all know, um, it goes overboard quickly. And the book talks about the negatives behind technology, but how to use it, how to use it well, and how to make sure it's not an idol in your own home. And one of the principles that he uses is, you know, one hour a day you turn off technology. Um, and in the middle of that, one day a month you have no technology. And then the hard one is one week a year. You have no technology. Wow. And the premise of the book is if you can do this and you can set the parameter, you'll start to see the joy in that one hour a day. You'll see the joy in that one day a month, and you'll see the joy in that one week a year. Um, now, obviously, there are a lot of principles that come into that. Most of us don't have a home phone anymore, and how do you look at that? Well, you know, if you're doing, you know, one week a year where you don't have technology, you still need to set aside, you know, maybe 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at night, hey, Go through phone calls. Let's let all our friends and family and loved ones know what we're doing. Let's make sure there's no emergencies. If there is an emergency, how do we need to set aside a opportunity for someone to get in touch with us and do those? A lot of times I think that would be let's go on vacation. Let's go somewhere. Let's go to a lake where, you know, it's easier to get away. And you start realizing how many puzzles you do. And, like, we do puzzles <laughs> with my son now at night during that. It's during dinner time that we set our hour each day. And, and we're not perfect. Um, it doesn't look perfect each night. Um, you know, sometimes Michelle's on a deadline and she's got to go to the office and, and you know, barricade herself in there. I might need to talk to Webb that night. But, again, we try to do it. We try to stick to it. And we have really been able to see the uh, the blessing that comes behind it with the quality time that we have with the family. That's awesome. That's awesome. If you're on – question number two, if you're on – if you're driving, what are you listening to? On a road trip, what, what are you listening to? So um, I'm a huge – so I'll listen to PGA Tour. Um, if the tournament's on, I'll listen to PGA Tour channel just because I like listening to what's going on with golf. But I'm a huge podcast guy. And, again, for those uh, who aren't believers, this isn't going to help them very much. But <laughs> I will challenge anybody that's thinking a little bit about faith and wants to know certain things. There are two men that I listen to over and over again on podcasts, and that's – Matt Chandler, who runs uh, a great church out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, Matt is a tremendous communicator, knows the Word of God really well, and really is relatable to 
your average everyday guy to the secular community who might be wondering about faith or even to, to an atheist that just wants to listen to somebody preach about the Bible, what we believe in, and do it in a way that can really relate to who does it tremendously. And then I'm fortunate to have uh, Joby Martin here in town uh, in Ponte Vedra in the Jacksonville area, who is just a tremendous pastor at the Church of 1122. And uh, again, he just is able to relate to the average ordinary guy or to a theologian who's trying to learn. Uh, obviously, both these men have their doctorate degrees. Both these men have gone through extensive training, but they are just able to relate to um, one's a hunter, um, one's a sports fanatic. Uh, you know, uh, Joby here is, uh, loves Georgia Bulldogs, who I can't stand. He will rip <laughs> on the Florida Gators every day. He won't even, I don't even think he says the name. I think he says that other school in Gainesville. Uh, but just again, very relatable men that help me understand the Bible better, help me understand how to relate to, to people that are maybe questioning. And I can't get enough of them. And go back in time. You can obviously look under topics. If you're just trying to learn, you know, maybe explain the gospel, and there'll be plenty of things to learn from. But Joby Martin and Matt Chandler, those are my two go-tos. Okay, okay. And then our last one, they make a movie about your life. Who plays you? <laughs> so uh, it, this one's pretty easy for me because I think <laughs> he's accomplished something which is almost impossible, um, and that would be Jim Caviezel. Is that how you pronounce his last name? I think Jim Caviezel. I think it's Caviezel. Okay. maybe. I think it's Jim Caviezel. So Jim Caviezel has played Jesus Christ, um, and he did that in Mel Gibson's movie, obviously, Passion of the Christ, and Jim Caviezel has played Bobby Jones. And if you can have anybody that's played <laughs> uh, one of the top two greatest players that has ever lived, the last guy to win the Grand Slam, and if you can play somebody who is my savior, the son of God who came to save mankind. If you can play those two characters, I want you to play them. (laughs) (laughs) He's proven he can handle the role. If you can play Jesus and you can play Jones, then you are good enough for me any place that you go. Well, that is awesome. And, Paul, we thank you so much for your time. We thank you for – I mean, we've we've been talking together for a while, and we we just thank you so much for sharing what God's done in your life and – we will continue to pray for your family and anybody who is interested in learning more about the Tesori Foundation, the Tesori Family Foundation, go to TesoriFamilyFoundation.org. And once you're there, you can go to the All Star Kids Clinic and you can see if there is a clinic coming to a tournament around you. That's it. And we can always take uh, volunteers. And you might want to check out, too, I have a fun tournament on there called the 321 Classic. Uh, my son has the third copy of the 21st chromosome, and the premise of our golf tournament, we do threesomes. You're only allowed 21 clubs as a threesome, uh, hence the 3-2-1, and our theory is, is that my son can be successful even though he might not have been given the full amount of clubs or weapons to be able to be successful, mm. but he still can. And so we do the same thing for the golfers. Three of you, you got to find a way to have 21 clubs as a group and go be successful anyway. It's a fun event. Uh, we only allow 21 threesomes, uh, again, to keep with the 3-2-1 classic. It's $321. 100% goes back to the community, and uh, it, it's a fun thing as well. But, uh, Mike, it's really been fun talking to you. Thank you to you and the Champions Podcast for having me on. And um, I love being a part of, obviously, the golf community, but the faith community as well. And if anybody needs to uh, reach out for any questions to me, do it through the Tesori Family Foundation website, and, and our team will make sure I get the message. Awesome. Thank you so much.
Thank you again, Paul, for taking the time to talk to us today. Paul's story is so incredible, and we're just trusting that God is going to use parts of Paul's story to hopefully impact you, the listener. I know it's impacted me, and I'm trusting that something that Paul said, uh, that God's just going to use that to stir in your heart and um, draw you closer to him. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I would just encourage you, please go on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Please go on and rate, review, and then share the podcast if there's anybody that you think uh, might be interested in hearing this, that might benefit from hearing this. The, the, The more ratings that we get and the more reviews that we get, the more opportunity the Champions Podcast has to be out in front of people's eyes. Apple Podcast has some algorithm where ratings and reviews matter a lot in order to get it seen in front of people. And guys, honestly, this isn't about the Champions Podcast being on some top 100 chart or anything like that. At the end of the day, we believe that as Christians, we carry the most important message, and that's the message of the gospel. And the more people that can hear of life transformation stories, the more people that can hear of what God has done specifically in an individual's life, I believe, we believe, that that is what will provide hope for people. And maybe they'll see Jesus and God in a way that they've never seen them before. And so that's our motive for wanting you to rate and review share. Uh, not for numbers sake, but just for the sake of, of spreading the gospel. So with that, we're going to put a wrap to this interview. Uh, look for us next week as we will be interviewing major current Major League umpire Ted Barrett. As always, have a great week. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by A few minutes each day can change your life during Lent. Ave Maria Press offers booklets for daily devotion, reflection, and more from such best-selling authors as Gary Zemak, Greg Kandra, Father Michael White, and Tom Corcoran, and so many more. Looking for Stations of the Cross booklets or books that are perfect for small groups? We have those too. Head over to AveMariaPress.com and use code LENT20 to get 20% off your order today. Looking for exceptional coffee delivered fresh to your door? We have the answer. Our friends at Grim Bean Coffee produce small batch artisan coffee using top tier coffee beans. The coffee is roasted when you order, guaranteeing the freshest coffee possible. Check out Breadbox Roasts a new line of Catholic-themed coffees available at www.grimbeancoffee.com forward slash Redbox Media. Experience coffee like never before.